you have a copy of the Apostles' Creed and you have a copy of the Nicene Creed. Do you have them there? I would like you to take them out for a moment. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And then I'll read the Nicene Creed to you. How many of you came from churches where you read these or recited them every week? Anybody besides me? Yeah? Uh, Bill was here last week. He uh, also mentioned that he had been um, a helper for the priest in the church that he grew up in. I was too, uh, an acolyte in the Episcopal Church. He was in the Roman Catholic Church and I was in the Episcopal Church. Um, And I had these memorized back in those days because helping the priest serve communion. I never knew what they meant. I never knew what these meant until I got born again. And then suddenly it was like, oh my, this is really true. This is amazing. This is true. I mean, I wanted to tell, I wanted to go tell, and I did. I told my friends, they got sick of listening to me. This is really true. You know, this is really true. The Nicene Creed, if you have a copy of it there, Uh, from one of our previous meetings or the one tonight. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Can you say amen to all of that? To think through line by line as it's being said. I'll let you read the rest of this. Bill mentioned last week, and sometimes, and I don't know if you're new this evening and weren't here last week, but you'll notice in the middle part of that paper I gave you, it should be noted that the use of the term Catholic... (laughs) <laughs> in this context, does not refer to Roman Catholicism. You always have to remember that. The Catholic means universal. That's all it means. Roman Catholic means the Roman Church is theoretically universal. but uh, And the reference to hell is actually Hades, not Gehenna, not the, light, not, not the lake of fire. Jesus didn't go into hell. He went into the abode of the dead. But the term is used, and we'll, you'll see that more as we, as we move along. Now, I want you to look at another, another creed, the Nicene Creed. The, um, the Apostles' Creed dates back into the second century, and as Bill mentioned last week, it was used um, in training young believers. People were not very literate, some of them, many of them, most of them. Um, and so they put the, the Christian message, what the apostles taught, into something that they could recite. The apostles' creed, the apostles didn't write it themselves, their disciples did. But this was a baptismal formula, and it was called the Old Roman Creed, and then it was expanded a little bit over the next two or three centuries until the 6th or 7th century where it took the form we just said. But it dates clear back into the early church. Now the Nicene Creed was created as a result of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And it builds on the Apostles' Creed. 
Because in between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, people piped up and started a bunch of heresies. And so what happened is they had a huge meeting. Um, all, of the, all of the major pastors and theologians in the whole Roman Empire got together at the Council of Nicaea. And the result of that, it's a very long story. If you want, you can take the course that we have at the college on God, Christ, and Holy Spirit, and you can learn about these things. But the upshot of that was what we call the Nicene Creed. And over a period of time, it was honed into this. Now, I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to repeat it with me. But I would like you to read along as I read it. And I want you to notice some of the differences. You'll see it's expanded. It's a little bit longer. And I'm going to tell you this because when we talk about what some of these things mean tonight, it's going to, you're going to see why the Nicene Creed actually expanded some of the material from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Now notice the the phraseology here. The only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God. No, he's talking about Jesus. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation, by the way, don't be sexist here. When it says men, it means men and women. It always has all through human history, okay, up just until the last 30 years. For us humans and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man, human, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. Notice the historic, just like in the, in the, in the Apostles' Creed, right in history, right in a place, crucified for us. Under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried, and the third day rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he has, and he shall come again. That's part of the gospels, the return of Christ. With glory to judge both the living and the dead, judge the living and the dead, and whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Trinitarian. You see the Trinitarian meaning there? Who spoke by the prophets, going back into the Old Testament. Look at all the, look at, as you read through this, how much thought went into this, how much biblical thinking went into it, so that the textures of the whole Bible come out in this, in this creed. <clears throat> Worship together and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You see the similarity with the Apostles' Creed? See how they expanded it, though? They added a few things and clarified a few things, all of it completely biblical. They were using their Bibles. They were all fluent in Greek and Hebrew. And they were dealing with heretics who were denying some of these things. why they wanted to clarify it. Now, I'll let you read the rest of that. There were some interesting things, uh, but I'm not going to get into the Arian controversy. But, okay, take note of both of those creeds. 
Now let's look at our notes this evening, and we're going to be looking at some passages, and I'm going to go back and forth. I'm going to treat this a little bit like a college class, okay? I know it's different. I know that you shouldn't be expected to think and interact on a night when you come just for a Bible study. I get that. But tonight, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to leave it open because when I teach these particular things, I, if I say something that doesn't make sense or you have a question on the topic, uh, if it's on the topic, um, raise your hand. Okay, everybody raise your hand right now. Everybody just raise your hand. You see how we can do that? Even though you're sitting in church, you can do that? Okay. I want you to get... Okay, so if you have a question um, and it's on topic... I'll, I'll try my best to answer it because probably somebody else has the same question. If it's not on topic, but it's an important question, I'll stick around afterwards and we'll talk. Is that okay? Okay. Now, you don't have to take notes, but I gave you some notes, open notes if you want to take them. Let's begin with a little bit of review from last week. I believe, it's the first statement in the in the uh, in the creed what is a creed a creed is basically a succinct statement of everything you know to be true it's a succinct statement of what you know to be true with regard to god that's what a creed is and it comes from the latin term credo which means i believe and it's the first word in the latin version of the apostles creed it's the first word credo That's what a creed is. Everybody has a creed. They might not write it down, but they believe something about ultimate reality. Everybody does, even if it's not clear in their minds. The Christian creeds clarify the gospel. What does it mean to believe? When it says, I believe, what does belief mean? Bill talked about this last week and did a terrific job on it, and I'm just going to review it just a little bit here. Turn to Mark chapter 1, Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel was actually the earliest one, even though it's second to Matthew in order here in our Bibles because it was circulated that way in the early church. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel was probably the first one written down and the others were written later. Look at what Jesus says in Mark's gospel beginning in verse 14, chapter 1 of Mark. Now, after John was arrested, that means that's John the Baptist who was the forerunner to Christ. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, verse 15, Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. Now take note, when Jesus came, he said God has a timeline and this is a very important moment in it. Do you see what he's saying? The time is fulfilled. Something has been waiting for a long time happening now. If we had time, we would talk about some of the other passages that he quotes from the Old Testament about how important it is when he arrived. But he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why would the kingdom of God be at hand? Class. Because the king was standing there, and that had never happened. The king in the kingdom of God is the second person of the Trinity, and he had not taken permanent human form until Jesus was born. He appeared in the Old Testament 
in human form as the angel of Yahweh. But he hadn't taken permanent human form until this. And that's why he's saying, I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning, if you will begin to listen to me, you can enter into what's been promised since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, ever since the fall of man, the kingdom of God. You can enter into that. I mean, think about how stunning that is. He says, therefore, repent. And the Greek word metanoia means to change your mind, to turn around. And believe in the gospel. What does it mean to believe? The Greek word, as, as Bill mentioned last week, pistuo, is both a noun and a verb. It's, in Greek, they're the same word. <clears throat> Pistis and pistuo, that's the same root. In English, they're two different words. Faith as a noun, believe is the verb. Is the way we use it. But in the New Testament, they have the same root. And it's a command. Did you know that that's a command? Did you know that to hear it and say no is a very serious thing then. He says, I want you to believe I'm telling you the truth and I want you to believe something. I want you to let your weight fall down onto something here that I'm telling you that you can't know in any other way. He calls it the good news. That's what gospel means. Uh, euangelion, gospel. The Greek word gives us all the words that sound like that. Evangel, evangelistic, evangelical. They all come from that Greek original word for gospel. Good news. And he commands, he says, I want you to believe something I'm telling you. Do you ever tell your kids something and just look at their little selves, their little faces, and they're going, eh, and you go, you go like this. I want you to believe something. You listen to me. This will save your life. You listen to me and pay attention. That's what he's saying. And it is a command. What does it mean to believe? Notice number one on the notes under B. Jesus said to treat the gospel as the central statement of ultimate eternal reality. And he commanded it. You treat the gospel, that means the message of who Jesus is. That means what we just recited in its really skeletal form, but it's all true. This is the ultimate reality of eternal life forever. This is the most important thing humans have ever heard all through human history. And he's commanding it. To believe is to obey God and to put your weight down on something he says. Really to put your weight down on it. Note if you write stuff down, this is not the absence of evidence or thinking or knowledge. Faith is not the absence. Believing what God says is not the absence of evidence. It's not the absence of evidence. There's plenty of evidence for the existence of God. It's not the absence of thinking, and it is not the absence of knowledge. In fact, faith, believing, is a knowledge category. You cannot have belief without knowledge. Knowledge actually produces belief. They go together. The world will tell you that faith is what you do when you have no knowledge and you have no evidence. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says faith is a knowledge category. It's a way of knowing something. It is a kind of knowledge. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it's a kind of knowledge the world doesn't get, doesn't understand. John said the same thing in John's gospel, chapter 1, the first five verses. He came to his own and his home and, and the world did not get it. It's what, the, it's what the Greek means. He came there, the light came in, and the world didn't get it. 
because there's a spiritual blindness in the world. So to believe, credo, and we say, I believe, and if we really mean it, you can't mean that unless the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the reality of who Jesus, Messiah, really, truly is. That is supernatural. That kind of faith is supernatural. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. This faith, this ability to think this way, to know these things, is a gift of God. Pete. That's correct. He, his presence made the kingdom available. And his death and the pouring out of the spirit after his death made it available wholesale. Yeah, it's a good point. Up until that time, it had been promised and people were believing from the Old Testament. And so they are, we have Old Testament saints. It's called the remnant. It means the smaller group within Israel who, who trusted Yahweh ever since, ever since uh, well, Adam, but Abraham. So there was groups in the Old Testament that were part of this, but the real power of it came with Christ. Yeah, the beginning, the inauguration of the real thing. Okay, um, it's the presence. To believe means putting your weight down. It's the presence of the knowledge of things that we have not seen. It says this in Hebrews 11. We'll look at it in a minute. The conviction of things that you haven't seen well, then how do you know they're true? If you haven't seen them, how do you know they're true? Faith, Faith okay, believing, okay. Uh, but, but why? <laughs> Someone who knows told you and you believe them. See, a lot of people think that to believe in the Big Bang Theory doesn't take any faith. Really? Were you there? Who told you this? Well, a scientist did. What, the, the high priest of scientism? They told you this and you're taking their word for it. And I think that it's probably true. But the point is, it's a faith statement. Anytime you take someone else's word for something, if they are an expert and they know what they're talking about, you have real knowledge of reality, but it is faith because you're listening to someone else who knows what they're talking about. So when Jesus said, I know what I'm talking about and proved it by coming back from the dead, then we take what he says and what his apostles say and we put more weight on that than on anything else that we call knowledge. Does that make sense to you? So to believe, that's what believing really means. It's a knowledge category. Uh, The illustration I use, many of you know it already, my grandson Logan, when he was little, was fascinated by car engines. I had two daughters, neither of them cared about car engines. But Logan and all my grandsons, if there was a motor running, they wanted to watch it. They wanted to see it. They wanted to find out what was going on. Um, so I'd hold him. I'd lift him up and I'd say, this is, what's that? Well, that's a fan, you know, and it goes through the radiator and it cools off the water and then the water goes in and cools off the motor. And what's that? Oh, that's a carburetor and it mixes the fuel in the air and it goes into the motor. And in his little mind, he's going, okay, okay. Here's my question. I ask this in my theology classes and in the pulpit all the time. Did little Logan have real knowledge? Did he have real knowledge? How many of you think he had real knowledge? Raise your hand. Do you think this is a trick question? How many of you think he did not have real knowledge? Raise your hand. 
This is always, every time I ask it, it's about 50-50. And then there's people who chicken out and won't raise their hand for anything. They don't want to be tricked. See, the culture says, unless you do it, you don't know it. But that's not true, actually. He had real knowledge. What he didn't have was exhaustive knowledge. Now he works on his own cars. And he, he's going to teach his son to work on cars. And now he can rebuild a carburetor. And now he can rebuild a motor. And now he knows a lot more. But he had real knowledge because as much as I told him was true. It just wasn't everything he would ever learn. But he had real knowledge. And it was knowledge based on faith from an expert. I'm not really an expert in cars. But I know what a carburetor is. And I know I told him the truth. And the minute, from then on, he would tell his friends, that's a carburetor. How do you know? Did you take it apart? No, my papa told me. Well, Papa knew what he was talking about, which means Logan had real knowledge. So the answer, did he have real knowledge, is yes. And he had real knowledge based on the idea of someone who knew better who told him the truth. Now that is faith. And it's not without thinking and it's not without evidence. And it is real knowledge. That's faith. So don't believe the world when it says faith is what you have when you don't have any knowledge. Baloney. Humans live by faith all the time. Most of what you think you know, you know because an expert told you. Think about it. Unless you are an expert in a particular field, everything else that you learn, you learn from other people. That is what faith is. So when Jesus commands us, he says, you've got to take my word for this. Then, and we do? That's real knowledge. Did I see a hand up? Yes, Leslie. Yes, he had faith in me. Logan, you mean? Yeah, trusted my knowledge, yes. He had faith in me, and because he had faith in me and what I said, he had what uh, philosophers call cognitive rest. You know, cognitive rest. Papa told me, ah, that's all I need to know. Papa said that, and Papa knows. And I told him, never forget that, son. So what does it mean to believe? When Jesus says believe, and it's a command, what he's saying is take my word for this. I know what I'm talking about. If you take his word for it, if you take God's word for things, you are in touch with a kind of knowledge that the world doesn't know and cannot have and that you will never get outside the church of Jesus Christ. And, and if you go to university and you're not taking good theology courses from genuine people who know this knowledge, then however much knowledge you get at university, it isn't eternal. It doesn't have this kind of power, this kind of gravitas. This kind of knowledge is only available through the body of Christ in institutions of learning, beginning with the church and into schools and even into graduate work. And it's been this way for 2,000 years. So when you say, I believe, this is what you're saying. This has changed my life. I put my weight down on it. So, which is why, by the way, if you believe something, you will act on it. Remember COVID? It's nice to be able to say that. Remember COVID? Could you tell if a person believed that it was contagious? How could you tell? Well, they told you, yes. (laughs) Well, okay. They wore a mask. And I'm not passing judgment one way or another on the wearing of masks. I mean, people came to blows over this. But what I'm saying is this, if you believe the truth of something, you will act on it. 
And this is why when Christians take the word of God seriously, they try to act on it. They will live as though this is the actual reality. And that's why the creeds are so important. Because every line in these creeds tells you something real. It's a body of knowledge of reality. And you're saying, this is the most important reality in my life. So that's why the creeds are so important. That's why they had them in baptismal formulas. That's why they argued about them for years before they and honed the wording of them carefully. Because when they put their name on this, they're saying, this is true. Not just, well, I have these feelings, but no. you, this, I'm saying this is true. It's a very heavy thing to say. Especially about metaphysical reality. Invisible reality. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. Along the same line, First John chapter 1. Oh, by the way, did I tell you we're going to go back and forth in our Bibles a lot? First John. At the very end of your New Testament. First, second, third John, Jude, and Revelation. First John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, you talk about eyewitness. I want you to see what John says. Peter says the same thing in Second Peter. And if we had time, we would do exposition of both of these. But I just want you to read this one. Look at First John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now notice his appeal to the five senses. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You touch a word? You touch a word? What did John say about who's the word? That's what he's after. He's the same one that wrote John's gospel. So he says, touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, shown to us, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Notice the with the Father. So you have a real Trinitarian thing here, right out of John's Gospel, chapter 1, same author. With the Father, and was made manifest to us, and that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship, a deep sharing with us, and as a matter of fact, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to increase your joy. Now look at the eyewitness. See, this, when, when people read this and they go, I believe that. These people told me the truth. John told me the truth. He told me the truth about who Jesus is. Read his gospel, John's gospel. He tells you what the truth about Jesus. Peter says the same thing in Second Peter. I gave it to you there. You can look at it on your own. But Peter says, we did not make this up <laughs> in Second Peter chapter 1. We did not follow fables and myths. We were there At the transfiguration is what he's talking about. When the voice of the Father came and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we didn't make this up. And all these guys were killed, possibly John not, but not because they didn't try. They tried to boil him in oil and he didn't die. The rest of them were martyred rather than give up on this eyewitness testimony. Now, when, when reliable people who are experts in their field tell you something and you believe it, you are not being stupid. May I stress, if you believe the apostles of Jesus Christ, you are not being stupid. They are experts in what they're talking about. They were eyewitnesses. And if you will trust what they say about who Jesus is and talk to Jesus instead of about him all the time, you will get born again and you will live forever. 
That's exactly what they said. This is supernatural knowledge. Supernatural knowledge. When you say, I believe, and you say these creeds, this is what's going on in your heart. It's stunning. It's different than anything else in the world. And it's not just my opinion. I know it's true. I've put weight down on it. Heavy duty. Very heavy duty. What is the Apostles' Creed? We just read it, and I explained it to you. It's the synopsis that they came up with. The disciples of the apostles wrote it in the second century and um, honed it so that new believers would at least be able to affirm out loud in front of their friends, they would repeat this, and they would say, this is my life, this is what I believe now. It's wonderful. Now, the part that's, that I'm, they told me to talk about, I believe what? What? I believe. I believe. Well, what do you believe? In God. Genesis 1.1, now turn to it. I know you know what it says, but I want you to read it. I want you to see it. Genesis 1.1. I believe in God, and then we'll go through the lines. The Father Almighty, actually, I'm going to take them a little bit out of order, as you'll see in the notes. But he starts with, I believe in God. Uh, Chapter 1 of Genesis, the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bereshit, bara Elohim, et hashamayim, ve'et ha'aretz. That's the only Hebrew I've ever memorized. But it is a reference to God doing this on his own. And And don't get into arguments right now about how long it took him. Christians love to argue about that. That's not the point. The point is, it starts with God. And that's why a lot of people will say, you will get the whole Bible if you'll start with verse 1. Because what you're really saying, first and foremost, and it's in the creed, I believe in God. I believe in the real God. Look at your notes. In the beginning, God. The Bible is really about God. Did I write that in there for you? No? Okay, well, you can write it in. The Bible's really about God. It's more about him than it is about us. Even though he loves us and is saving us, the Bible's not about us. It's about him. It's about him taking his creation back after we screwed it up and turned it over to spiritual powers that are alienated and enemies of God. And they're still operating to this very day. It's the story of how he takes his creation back and redeems it and recreates. That's why in the beginning there's a creation, at the end of the, the book of the Bible, the last two chapters of the Revelation, another creation. And this one, he's right in the middle of it. It's amazing. So it's really about him. Number one under A, under number two there on your notes, right? Yes, there is a God. <laughs> so write this down. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of apologetics. People say, well, I don't know if I believe in God. When people tell me that, I say, Really? Why do you not believe in God? It makes perfect sense. It makes more sense than all the other stuff that people say. So write this down. You'll see it. I've it. You can fill it in if you want. If anything at all exists, <clears throat> if anything at all exists, something must have what? No, that's true too, but no, no, uh-uh, no. Something must have existed forever. Let that soak in. Something must have, something had to have existed forever. Why? Because out of nothing, what comes? Nothing. That's an old philosophical maxim. It's been around for thousands of years. Out of nothing, nothing comes. If there's really nothing, 
If there's really nothing, what would there be now? Nothing. Would we be here? No. So if anything at all exists, something has to have existed forever. So when people say, I don't believe in God, start with this. And they'll look at you like a calf at a new gate. They'll go, huh? What are you talking about? Something has to have existed forever. And the more you think about it, the more you realize that has to be true. B, the eternal, the necessary being, in philosophy they call it the necessary being, but eternal, is either personal, meaning a mind, write that down, personal, or impersonal, stuff. What other options do you have? It's either a mind, because we know minds exist, we have them, we're using them right this minute. So the eternal is either a mind or it's stuff. Now for many, many generations, science, quote unquote, said stuff is eternal. But back in the 90s, well, actually, in the early part of the 20th century, they began to question that. And by the 1990s, almost, almost all of even atheistic science had said there was a time when this wasn't here. And there was a moment where all of it came into existence. And they pretty much demonstrated that that's the case. Well, the theologians were sitting there thinking that the whole time. And one guy wrote, he said, this is very frustrating because the scientists who said he, that stuff is eternal... They climbed the mountain of knowledge. And when they got to the top, there were a bunch of theologians already sitting there. <laughs> of course there was a beginning. And some of you said, you know, if anything exists, it had to be created. That's true in terms of matter, but there's something before matter, and it's either a mind or it's matter itself. Now here's the third thing to take note. It is more likely that a mind created stuff, write that down, then that stuff created a mind. Don't you think? Now, when people say, I don't want to believe in God, if you have the time, you're sitting there having coffee, you know, at St. Arbuck's, and you, and you sit there and they, you ask them a question. What do you think about this and this? these three questions? It makes perfect sense. And we'll talk more about creation Later in the talk. More likely that a mind created stuff than stuff created a mind. Yes, as we used to say, yes, Virginia, there is a God. Okay? Makes perfect sense. And no, the culture does not believe in him. Take note of that in the notes. The culture you live in is post-Christian, post-theistic, really, in a lot of ways. And um, this is a whole different talk that I do about the... the worldviews, but I'm going to just streamline it for you here. Many people teach that there simply is no God. You'll see that in the notes. That's atheism, agnosticism, and philosophical naturalism. Do you know what philosophical naturalism is? It's, huh? Well, it's teaching there's no God, but what it's teaching in a positive sense is matter is all there is. Naturalism. Nature. That's all there is. There is, and the implication is there's no God. That's right. Philosophical naturalism is what is taught as dogma in our schools now for the past two generations. Uh, actually, since the late 1800s, it started to infiltrate, and now it completely has taken over the, the knowledge base and the plausibility structures of all of our educational systems, the public education. Um, it, it's, it's atheism, agnosticism. They say you can believe in God if you want, but it's not a fact. It's just a value. 
And you, if you know the Apostles' Creed and you know anything I've been talking about, should shout right back at them, yes, it is a fact. <laughs> and there's every bit of evidence for it. God actually is a fact. See, the, the world says God was our idea. The Bible says we were God's idea. I'm not kidding you. That's exactly what it is. We, in the early 1800s, Ludwig Feuerbach and then later Sigmund Freud popularized the idea that people were scared of the world and so they made up the idea of God. That's just baloney. God said, I think about these people, I'm creating them. We are his idea. He's not our idea. And if you don't know that and you don't affirm that, you're never going to get anywhere with the Lord. So, and then here, number B there on the notes, some people think everything is God. This is called monism, pantheism, panentheism. If you have questions about these, talk to me afterwards. But basically it's the idea that the creation itself is God in some way, or that he's wearing it like a suit of clothes. Um, No time to go further into that. But monism is very popular in New Age uh, religions. Where you're part of the great Eck consciousness. You know, it's all one vibrational thing. And then there's wonderful you. Everything is God. Third, some people think there are a lot of gods. Now, the Bible does talk about false gods. And it talks about demons. God-like creatures. Spirit entities. That people have worshipped. Using idols. In the Old Testament, you see this all the time. But there's really only one genuine, ultimate creator God. Now, when you say, I believe in God, you're saying, I believe in that one. Because the world, a lot of times, will say, oh, we believe in God. And what you want to ask is, do you believe in the one in the Bible? Do you believe in the real one? And a lot of times you'll find out, oh, no, 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 no. My idea of God is... And, you know, I'd rather have God's idea of me than my idea of God, okay? So some people think there's a lot of gods, polytheism, animism, animism, Native American religions, where stuff has spirit in it, like the spirit of the wolf and the spirit of the lion and the spirit of the deer and stuff like that. That's animism. Pagan, occult, nature religions, all of them are this kind. Many gods. And then D there. Many think there is one god. They're monotheistic, but they now get this because remember the creeds. And remember what the Bible teaches. They, the God they believe in, they say there's one God. They're monotheistic. But he's not the real father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why that word father is so important in both of the creeds. There are monotheists who do not believe that the God they're talking about is the father of Jesus Christ or anybody else. Now that is a, that is a watershed issue. Because if you're not talking about the father of Jesus Christ, you're not talking about the real God. These monotheistic religions have their origins in the Bible, actually. Deism, Islam, and Judaism are the three. And all monotheism comes out of the Bible, by the way. All of it. And uh, um, deism, anybody know what deism is? It's the idea that there is a God. He's probably a lot like the God in the Bible, but he's not the father of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't God. The Trinity isn't true. The resurrection didn't happen. But there is a God who created us and will judge us. Okay, That's deism. It was very... It it took the world by storm philosophically. Guess when? In the late 1700s. 
1776. Does that ring a bell with anybody? When was our nation born? Right then. And many of the people who, who went to work on our original documents for our nation, not all of them by any means, many of them were genuine Christians, but a lot of them were deists. They were Unitarian deists. Unitarian meaning we don't believe in the Trinity. We only believe in the one God and Jesus is a created being, if he's there at all. Thomas Jefferson, who a lot of Christians quote as if he was a Christian, but he wasn't. <laughs> he was a deist. He made fun of the Trinity. He actually made fun of the deity of Christ. But before you think Thomas Jefferson was wonderful, he said a lot of good things. And if you just quote the stuff you like about him, it sounds like he was marvelous. But he represents a kind of thinking that was really at its apex in the late 1700s, right when our nation was born. And that thought has become the religion of America. Deism is actually the religion of America, not Christianity. When, when Eisenhower put into the Pledge of Allegiance in, in 1956, one nation under God, they only added that in the 50s after World War II. <clears throat> one nation under God, he could never have said one nation under Christ. It would never have flown. They would never have passed it. One nation under God. So there's such a thing as monotheism in which you're not admitting that this is the God who's the father of Jesus Christ. Now, remember the, remember the creed that you're holding to and make note the difference between, between deism and real Christianity. Deism is a, is a, a whole other religion. Islam and Judaism both deny the fatherhood of God over Jesus Christ. They both deny the incarnation. In uh, Islam, in the, in the Quran, um, in Surah 112, verse 3, it says, God does not beget, and he is not begotten. And that's actually written in Arabic over one of the main doors into the Dome of the Rock in Israel, right? That, that was built over the site of the original Jewish temple. And you can go there. That's the big thing with the golden roof that you see pictures of. Over the door, one of the doors, a bunch of doors there, but one of them, is Surah 112, verse 3. God is, and they, God is not begotten and he does not beget. And that was aimed directly at the Christians. So Islam is monotheistic, but it's not about the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Judaism is the same way. Uh, their doctrine of God only goes to Malachi. <laughs> or if you're reading their Bible to the end of Second Chronicles. The idea that Jesus is really, truly the DNA Son of God, the real tr Son of God, more on that next week, is denied. So look, note those four things. Some people say there is no God. Some people say everything is God. Some people say there's a bunch of gods. And some people say, no, there's only one God, but he's not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you deny all of those, and you put your weight down on the creed that you just read. He's known, be on the notes, he's known by his primary title, which is, write it down, very shocking, God. That's <laughs> his primary title. Okay, write that down. Known by his primary title, which is God. We saw it in Genesis 1.1. It's the most generic and general term for him in the Bible. It's used over 4,000 times in the Bible, almost, well, always referring I take it back. There are times when the term Elohim does refer to false gods <clears throat> and spirit beings. But by and large, the term Elohim 
in, uh, in Hebrew refers to the one God. Over 4,000 times in the Bible, very important. In the Hebrew, it's El, Elohim, Eloah. Um, I won't go further into that. In Greek, it's Theos. We get our word theology from it. It, it's, simply, it's his title. And I gave you um, the definition of who he is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They're number two under B. Does anybody know or have you heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Have you? Good. Some of you come from maybe a Reformed background or churches that understand the Westminster Shorter Catechisms. Very important statement of faith, Protestant statement of faith that dates all the way back to the 17th century when there was a lot of argument going about these things. And so these guys, these theologians got together. They said, look, we're going to do a catechism here. And they, and a catechism is you ask a question and you give an answer and you ask a question, you give an answer. It's a way of teaching kids. And the, and the question is, who is God? Look at the definition. God is spirit. That means he doesn't have a body. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In his being, unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Big, thick books like I just showed you earlier today on every one of those topics. Hundreds of big, thick books on every one of those topics. He goes by his title. He also goes by his covenant name, which is Lord or Yahweh. Write that down. Capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's a translation in English of the term Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which is his personal name. Look at Exodus chapter 3. This is where we find it. And the first time is in Exodus chapter 3, where he talks to Moses in the burning bush. Turn there, and I'll show you. This is where God says, now, I do have a title, God, but I also have a covenant name that I give to my friends who are in covenant with me. And that name is Yahweh, and it's translated Lord in your Bibles. This is the God that you actually believe in. Exodus chapter 3. So Moses is there at the burning bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. That's actually, notice, uh, look at verse 2 of Exodus 3. The angel of Yahweh, see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? Everybody see that? Yes? Just nod. Make me feel better. All, all caps. <coughs> you notice that? It's all caps, even though the, the three of them are smaller, but it's all capital letters, right? That's how the English translations tell you that the original Hebrew word is Yahweh, his personal name. They, the Jews said, we don't want to actually pronounce the name. It's too holy. So they used the term Adonai, Lord. And out of deference for that, Christians have always translated Yahweh by the word Lord. Okay, The Jews always referred to God as the Lord, which, by the way, that's how they referred to Jesus constantly. Now, Moses says, um, I'm here. <laughs> and then, and God says, I'm going to send you and do this. And Moses says, bah, who are you? I mean, tell me your name. Who am I going to tell? Verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father and the God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's the biblical God. He says, that's who I am. And then skip down to verse uh, 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Can you imagine that? God sent me. How many, have you ever talked to anybody that said God sent them to you? And then you found out later, maybe not. Not so much. 
People did that all through history. There's false prophecy all through history. So they're going to say, oh yeah, really? What's his name? What am I going to tell him? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that is the Hebrew, Yahweh, I gave it to you, number one under C, Yahweh from Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H. It means, uh, it's the verb to be, I am. And by the way, this is what Jesus said about himself. In John's gospel, several times, Jesus speaks of himself as I am. And that's another, you can't get away from the deity of Christ in the New Testament once you understand these things. So notice, God has a title, God, and he also has a name, Yahweh, and it's a covenant name. And this term, Lord, is used over 7,000 times in the Bible. And it's a translation of some different ones in Greek and Hebrew, but it all refers to the real God. Let me just make note of that. So you have a person that you're worshiping who's a person, pure spirit, absolutely perfect, infinite in every way, invisible to you, invisible now to you, but he can make himself visible through the second person of the Trinity. And he goes by the title God and he has a personal name, Yahweh. Okay? And it's a covenant name. So he comes into relationship with human beings and he says, I will tell you my name and I already know yours. Okay? And from that moment on, you have a relationship with him. And this is what he's talking about to Israel. He says, I created you out of nothing as a nation and, not, and you belong to me and I belong to you. And we have a covenant. From Abraham on, we're studying Genesis just coming to the end of it here. And, uh, and that, you can trace that all the way through. So that's God, and oh, there's so much more. I teach a class in which we, we go for like 25 hours just talking about the nature of God. I had so many more notes. I had like 10 more, literally 10 more pages to talk about the nature of God, how much he knows, how much he loves, how, who he really deeply, we don't have time. But when you're saying, I believe in God, the credo, this is the God you're talking about. It's the one in the Bible, None, not the rest of them. The Almighty. Now, I took that out of, out of in, the, in the creed. It says, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I took the word Almighty, and I'm putting it here, and we'll unpack it. And then we'll come back and talk about the Father in a minute. Roman numeral three, almighty, note the two terms, El Shaddai and Pantocrator. El Shaddai is Hebrew, I gave them to you, and Pantocrator is Greek. Do you know the song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Yonah Adonai? Those are, those are Hebrew words for God. El Shaddai is God Almighty, El Elyon is Most High God, um, El Elyon and Adonai is My Lord, and all of them refer to God in the Bible. So that song that people sing comes from those Hebrew and, and uh, their Hebrew terms. Um, Revelation 1.8, turn there. Revelation, everybody knows where Genesis is and everyone knows where Revelation is. So they turn confidently. You don't need to use the little cheater tabs on the edge because you know where Revelation is. Verse 8. <clears throat> Now, this is a reference to Jesus, but it's also a reference to God the Father. I don't have time to go through that, but it speaks of the deity of the Son. Look what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. That's kurios theos in Greek. It it is referring to the one and only God 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's Pantocrator. It means controller of everything. Pantocrator. All power. God the Almighty. Now that, it's in the creed so that we would know just how powerful God is. And remember when Gabriel told Mary and she says, how can these things be? I can have a baby and so on. And he says, is anything impossible with God? Implication? No, of course not. That's all power. All power. Not some of it. Not just bigger than us. Not just smarter than us. But in a category of reality beyond our wildest imagination. Now, you have to get this. That's what the word holy means. It's a category of reality beyond your wildest, wildest imagination. You have no category for understanding how glorious God is. And that's why he uses symbolism to get the point across. Because we don't get it. We're so fallen, we can't understand what almighty really means. But that's his, that's his title. And that's why they put it in the creed. The Almighty. And then Genesis 17.1. Turn there. See, Genesis, you know where Genesis is. Some of you are going, man, there's little gold stuff stuck to the leaves of my Bible here on some of these passages. Genesis chapter 17. Abram was 99, verse 1. Abram was 99 years old. And who appeared to him? Yahweh, see that's all caps, Lord. He appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God, what? Almighty. It should read that in an English translation. That's El Shaddai. <clears throat> and again, it's a reference to his omnipotence. The fact that he literally has, literally has all power. He's not just more powerful. He has all of the power. All of it. All of it. And he shares it with his creatures, both in the spirit realm and among humans who were created in his image. He shares it, but it's all his. Your life is on loan from him. You wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him. And by the way, this is why when you pray, you can expect that God might be able to do a miracle because he has all power. Romans 8, 28. You know, all things work together, right? For the good of those who love God and called according to... That wouldn't be true if he were not Ponto Crator, if he were not El Shaddai. And that's why when people pray to Satan, I just say, pray on. Because he can't answer any of your prayers without the permission of God. But God can answer prayers without the permission of anybody. Because why? He's Ponto Crator. God Almighty. That's in the creed. That almightiness. Oh, oh, if we only had the time. More, we could talk about this. The Almighty. Do you know that he knows everything, even the stuff that, uh, that could have happened that didn't? Do you know that he knows who your kids would be if you'd have married the first person you dated? Did you know that? Do you know what? That's, om, that's omniscience to know everything and, and how everything turns out. And then we think to ourselves, well, Lord, are you sure you know what you're doing with this situation I'm dealing with here? You know, so I've got some advice I'd like to give you about how to deal with this. Huh. See, this is why in the creed they put the word almighty. So much more. Who created the heaven and the earth. Roman numeral four on the notes. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We just looked at it. Look at Hebrews 11. Go back into the New Testament. 
We had already looked at Genesis 1, so I won't turn you there because he's, you know that's where it says it. But Hebrews chapter 11 in your New Testament, you can always find Hebrews, it's right after Philemon. As some of you know that that's a joke because Philemon's only one page. <laughs> and Hebrews is like 15. Look at, what, look at what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And by the way, when you read the word hope, I always say this, you've got to get it. When you read the word hope, you've got to read the word anticipate. Because that's what it means, anticipation. It doesn't mean, oh, gee, I hope I win the lottery. It means anticipate something because you know it's going to be good. That's what, that's what the word hope means. So he says, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, that means you know it, of things that you haven't seen. And we talked about that. For, for by it, this faith, this way of knowing, the people of the old received their com- commendation. God said, that's good. That guy trusts me, like Abraham. He says, you're going to have a lot of kids. Abraham hadn't had one. <clears throat> he didn't have one until he was 100. And, but he trusted God. God said, that's good. I'm counting that as righteousness. He says, that's how you receive the commendation. You believe what God tells you. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the express mind of God. A word is the expression of a mind. So the word of God, he expressed his mind. He said, light. And there was light. Okay? We understand. Notice that. We understand, this is a knowledge category, that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen, what is seen, is not made out of things that are visible. Now, remember in the Nicene Creed, when, and I had, that's why I had you read that or read along with me, it says both visible and invisible, whereas in the Apostles' Creed, it said he created everything. In the Nicene Creed, it expanded it, both visible and invisible, because the invisible realm, the unseen realm is real. And in a lot of ways, more real than this one because it predates it. And what he's saying is the material realm came from the unseen realm, which is where God actually functions. It's called the heavens in the Bible. And God, who is unseen, expressed his mind and stuff happened. And he said, I'm going to express my mind and put my own spirit in some stuff. And you happened. God breathed into Adam. That is really cool. He created the heavens and the earth. A on the notes, no, we are not, write it down, cosmic accidents. Okay? No, we are not cosmic accidents. I don't care how many learned people say that you're an accident. None of them act like they are accidents. No, we are not cosmic accidents. Creation makes perfect sense. Never back off on that. People say, oh, you just, you just believe in creation. Yeah, and you believe that you're just a big grown-up germ. So what are we, you know, why are you making fun of me? Creation makes perfect sense because it's more likely that a mind created stuff than the stuff created a mind. Stand your ground. You don't have to give up on that. We're not cosmic accidents. If everything came out of nothing for no reason by sheer chance, that is philosophical nonsense. David Berlinski, not a Christian, he's a Jewish thinker, a secular Jew, um, pretty old now, but he is a thorn in the side of evolutionists. 
even though he's not a he's not a theist even he he says i don't i don't know if i believe in god he says my my uh my hebrew training when i was a kid he said it didn't stick i don't remember any of the hebrew but he says i know this for a fact cuz he writes on science got his phd from princeton has written a bunch of books on mathematics and science and has always debated scientists about this he says i know this for sure science hasn't proven that god doesn't exist and doesn't even have any evidence that god doesn't exist no, you are not an accident. In fact, Berlinski, in an article uh, in a magazine back in the late 90s, he said, uh, this idea that everything came out of nothing for no reason is incandescent horse. Yeah. I won't say it because we're on tape and, you know, I'll get emails. But <clears throat> and then he goes on and he says, it's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. No, we are not cosmic accidents. There is a creator, and he created both the visible and invisible realm. B, that's B on the notes. Creation includes the visible and invisible realms. So when you say God's the creator, it's not just the stuff he created. He created the angelic realm. And and whatever the demons are, they are created beings. <clears throat> Fallen angels, what most Christians think. And that could very well be the case. I kind of think that myself. But we don't know for sure. But there's spirit beings out there. There's a spirit realm that is real and visible in it. When you're in it, it's visible to you. Um, and he created that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. How much time do I have left? Five minutes. Oh, right. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. When you say the creed, you're saying, this is reality and I'm living in this reality. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 2 Corinthians 4, visible and invisible from the Nicene Creed, verse 16. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. And all God's people said? Amen. Or actually, several of them did. Others are young and healthy. Uh, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature, now look at the difference, is being renewed day by day. A person with a body that's wearing out can have a spirit that's absolutely alive. Absolutely alive. And looking forward more than anything. Renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, he calls this life. He was beat up everywhere he went. He was shipwrecked several times. He had bruises all over and they finally cut his head off when he was in his mid-60s. He says this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Can't even be compared. As we look, now look at what he says. As we look, not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So he's saying, I want you to look at the things that are unseen. How can you do that? In Ephesians, it says, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Like a light coming on in a dark room for your physical eyes. Your heart can have a light come on. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Read Ephesians 1, you'll see. And he says, so that you see the glory of what it is to belong to God. <laughs> we call it cardioptics. Heart, sight. Okay? And that's where the knowledge comes. So he says, 
We look at not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. We're looking at the unseen things with cardioptics. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal, both of them created by God. So when it says that he's the creator of all things, and then it's expanded in the Nicene Creed, is what it means. And you have to broaden your understanding of the creation. It's not just natural and supernatural. All of it is, you know, we use the term supernatural, and it's okay to use that term. But he sees the whole thing all at once. We can't see the invisible realm now. It will be an open interface, according to the Bible, it will be an open interface in the millennium and in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth. Angels and resurrected humans will be hanging out together and doing all kinds of good creative stuff that God at that time. Right now, we can't see it all, but you have to have a worldview that includes that. Why? Because he's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. It's right there in the creed. That's why you believe it. See, creation, in the notes, creation includes the sustenance. Sustenance, S-U-S-T-E-N-A-N-C-E. The sustenance, the sustaining of the material world by the expression of his mind, his word. Look at Hebrews. <clears throat> Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Oh, you've got to see this. And I won't take you to the... Colo- well, maybe I will. This is just so amazing. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. He's a talking God. And then he lets it be written down. And then it becomes his voice. On paper. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. So the agent of creation is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And he, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the outshining of the actual glory of God. He's talking about Jesus here. And the exact imprint of his nature. Don't tell me that Jesus is not God in the flesh. The exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds, look, this is the part I want you to see. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know what that means? That means that the universe was created by God, but it's also sustained by God, and it's the, it's the effortless expression of his mind that makes energy and all the four forces of of physics function. The entire material realm functions not on the, quote, laws of physics, but on the law of God for physics. It's his mind that sustains the universe. And he's talking about Jesus here, but he's also talking about God the Father because they share the same essence. Nobody knows what energy is. People say, oh yeah, I know what energy is. E equals MC squared. That's not what energy is. That's what it does. It's a measurement of what it does. But nobody knows what it is. No philosophers, nobody. But the Bible says, and energy, by the way, you know, the New Agers are right. There's all these energy things in the world. And uh, quantum physics has really pointed out, even though it's a mystery, they don't know how it works, that really you're just a bundle of energy. And it comes across in material reality but nobody knows what it really is but the bible says it's the mind of god expressing reality in the material realm and that includes you which is why your life is on loan from god which is why he says if i'm going to resurrect you you can guarantee i can guarantee you it's going to happen it cannot not happen it's the expression of my mind 
the sustenance of the material world. So by the word of God. So who is the word of God? Number one under C. Class? Of course, it's the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus. John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. Look quickly. We'll go quickly. We're almost done. Look quickly at Colossians in your New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Do not tell me he's not God in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, meaning the most important member of the family, that was the firstborn, of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Very interesting. Where did the creed get the visible invisible talk? Right out of the Bible from Paul. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, that spiritual rulers and authorities talking about, all things were created through him, through Christ, and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things, look, what does it say? Hold together. Yeah, the word of God holds everything together, and it's a person. Does that not blow your mind? I mean, if smoke isn't pouring out of your ears by this time, you're just not paying attention. Now, when you say these things in the creed, (laughs) this is what you're saying. You're, You're saying this is reality. And the world says it's not. And you say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because the person who understands it has said it. And finally, we'll close with this in Roman numeral five, the father. I believe in God the Father, and I, I moved it to the end because I wanted to talk about his fatherhood. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. You and I have a, write it down, true Father in heaven. And then I wrote in there, no, really. <laughs> we have a true Father in heaven. We say this so glibly, and we just take it for granted that we get to call God Father. Listen, I want you to slow down and think about what it means that the creator God we've been discussing here is actually a true father to you, a real father to you, a true, genuine, real father to you. You've been made part of his family, and he loves you as one of his children. Romans 8. I didn't go into all these passages. Take the theology course at TC, at uh, PBC that we teach. But there's Romans 8, Galatians 4, both talk about us being adopted into the family of God by the power of the Spirit. Born again, Jesus said. Peter says that the the divine nature has been put into you like a seed and it is bringing forth eternal life. (laughs) God is really your father. I mean, that's when you're born again. This is number one, a unique, write it down, privilege. A unique privilege. For lack of time, I won't turn, but in... John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, to those who received him. It says in the first few verses that not everybody did. They rejected him. But then it goes on and says, to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right or the power to become what? The children of God. And it says that they were not born by human flesh. He goes right on and says that. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 3. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
this is a privilege that is beyond your imagination. When you say God is my father, he's not everybody's father. That's one of the uh, one of the myths of liberal theology that started in the mid 1700s. Uh, that God was everybody's father. The universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. That's the social gospel. That's not what the, the Bible says. Human beings are born as enemies of God and God comes, let he let himself be killed by us so that he can come back and rescue us. And the only people who can really say that God is their father are people who've come into Christ, metaphysically joined in Christ who is the second person of the Trinity, and because of him, you've been adopted into this life, you get to call God Father. That's wonderful. And unique. Unique. I'm going to skip to number three and then come back to number two. Is that okay? As long as I do it quickly. Okay, number three under A. It is also a precious reality to the Lord himself. In John 20, where, remember, Mary Magdalene jumped on him? Remember, she was the first one to see him in the resurrection. And she grabbed him, and he says, don't, I have not ascended. You go tell my my brothers that I'm ascending to my God and your God, their God, and my father and their father. He is more excited. I mean, if I got back, came back from the dead, I'd be looking at Mary going, do you like this body? <laughs> Look at this. It's amazing. I'm resurrected. No. He says, I'm going to be ascended, and my father is now your father. He loved that idea. But he's only talking to his disciples. If you're here, or you're listening to this, and you've not come to Christ... God is not your father. He doesn't become your father until you come to the son. And mystically, we say, it's the way the church has put it, but it's a metaphysical spirit reality where you are joined into God's life through the son. Then God is your father. And that's the heart of all prayer, by the way. Jesus said that. He says, you're going to talk to God directly. You don't even have to talk to me to talk to God. You're going to talk to God as your father. He said this in John 14. You don't have to talk to anybody else and get them to talk to God, which really is kind of interesting considering the history of the church and how often people want to talk to saints and Mary and get, get them to talk to... <laughs> uh, Jesus said you can talk directly to the Father because he's your Father. That's how prayer works. You, you speak to the Father because you're in the Son and the Holy Spirit interprets it for you. That's why it always works even when you, even if he says no. Precious reality. So number one, a privilege. Number three, a precious reality. And number two, a wonderful comfort. This is a huge comfort. And that Matthew 6 that I gave you there is where Jesus says, I want you to pray this way. Our Father, who is where? In the heavens. May your name be holy. And then you bring the requests. Um, The fatherhood of God is the most precious relational reality in the gospel. 
that everything else comes out of it. And I wrote it down for you. I mean, this is a whole nother sermon. It's a whole nother class. But look at what it is and what it really means. He listens and cares. This is in Romans 8, 26, but it's everywhere. The people that he loves, he listens to them. People who have a covenant with him, he listens to them. He sees them. He knows what's going on. He's with them in it. He listens and cares. Why? Because he's a true father. His grace and compassion, true fathers are gracious and compassionate. Of course they are. Even if you had a bad one, the reason you know you had a bad one is because you kind of know intuitively what a good one would be like. Am I right? Of course. Of course I'm right. (laughs) His grace and compassion. He's a father. His instruction and correction. Yes, he does correct us. But always only because he loves us and always only because he intends to bless us through the correction. His understanding and patience. Fathers are patient. When you think, Lord, I've had to repent so many times. Are you tired of listening? And he says, you are my child since you came to Christ. I'm not tired of listening to you. His guidance and provision. This is all from the father. Think about a good father. It's all these things. His love and security. His love and security. Did Jesus talk about a father like that? Of course he did. Where? The prodigal. Remember the prodigal son in Luke 15? I didn't give you that, but you can jot it down. Luke 15, the the parable of the prodigal. This is a child of his who runs away and eats with the pigs and screws up his life and his big brother's mad at him. But when he comes back, the father says, this is my child. This is my son. And he says to the older brother, idiot, you ought to be happy that your goofy brother has finally repented because the father never stopped loving him. Why? Because he's a father. (laughs) And a lot of Christians think they're going to get thrown out of the family. God doesn't throw his kids out of the family, and he's not an abortionist. I get into these arguments with people about whether a true Christian is genuinely secure. Jesus said, I lose none of mine. Now, there are fake Christians. I'm not talking about those. But Jesus says, I know mine, they know me, John chapter 10, 27 to 30. I know mine, they follow me, I lose none of them. He says, the Father gave them to me. I lose none of them. God does not abort the spiritual life that he gave birth to. He's not an abortionist. Okay? And a father doesn't throw the kid out of the the family. Look at the security. Look at the joy. Our Father. So when you're saying the creed, this is what you mean. <laughs> As a great illustration of this, true story. Years ago, a bunch of kids playing. It was, uh, the water was murky, little tiny guy swimming with his friends. He starts to sink. And um, all the other kids are bobbing to the surface and the parents are watching all this, right? And the one father... He realizes he can't see his son anywhere among these little kids. And he waits and waits, you know. And he finally dives in. And he couldn't see, you know, because it was murky. And what had happened was the little dude had realized he didn't know which, which way was up. You know, you get a kind of a vertigo if you can't see what's going on. And he held his breath and he grabbed onto one of the pylons underwater, like eight feet underwater. He just grabbed on and held his breath. So you got this little tiny guy, not knowing what to do, grabs on and holds his breath. His dad jumps in, goes and gets him, (laughs) pulls him off of that, takes him to the surface, 
is, he says, Dad, I knew you'd come and get me. I'm a little surprised at the insecurity that a lot of Christians have. When this God has done these things on our behalf, and you get to call him Father, the omnipotent God of the universe, that's all in the creed. And it's only in the first line. Next week, we will talk about who the Son is. And oh man, there's so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us of these things. And for the supernatural life you've put within us and drawn us into. And that we look forward to. Thank you for your goodness to us in these things. And thank you for the creeds. Thank you for historic statements by our own brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago that we still hold to because the scriptures are true. And we pray that you give us courage, peace, strength, just what we've talked about here, to walk as your children, to live transformed lives, to continue repenting and living for you to the best of our ability because we know you came to get us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless.